I'm curious, how is a person supposed to know what's true? Yeah, that's the, that's the $64,000 question, right? It's a process. It's You never really arrive at any final conclusion. It's just that you question everything and just always remain open to the possibility that you're wrong and try to keep becoming less wrong, as we say. Like, you're never definitively correct. It's more that we're just trying to minimize error as much as possible. Here with the award-winning Curiosity.com, I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, we're going to learn about scientific skepticism. Every week, we explore what we don't know because curiosity makes you smarter. This is the Curiosity Podcast. For some people, pseudoscience and conspiracy theories are kind of fun to talk about. But others take things a little too far. And when they do, why can't you convince them that a fact is a fact? Here to discuss, my guest this week is Dr. Steve Novella an academic neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine and one of America's favorite skeptics. I'm here with Steve Novella. He is the founder of the New England Skeptical Society, the host of the Skeptics Guide to the Universe podcast since May 2005, author of the Neurological Blog, as if he wasn't busy enough. I think the most important title here is also a pen and paper role-playing gamer. Occasionally. <laughs> Occasionally. What's your poison right now? Um, I'm actually, uh, my brother Jay and I are, are running a Star Wars campaign for some friends of ours. So we're sort of co-GMing that. And um, I sort of, I reconnected with my medical school friends because we had a campaign at that time. And we've been trying to run it, to run a, our old campaign completely online. So we're doing it, uh, you know, because they all live all over the country. So uh we can't physically get together, but that it's actually working out pretty well. That's that's really incredible to me because your whole, I guess, career slash brand or personality is kind of based around being skeptical. But you have a, a pretty strong interest in science fiction and fantasy and things like that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a total, total nerd when it comes to all things science fiction and fantasy. But I think that that's... You know, not only is it not incompatible with being a skeptic, a rationalist, a scientist, but I think it's actually helpful because, you know, I, I see a lot of people who um, they they also crave something fantastical, something interesting, entertaining in their life, but they confuse it with reality. I think a lot of people who believe in pseudosciences or conspiracy theories or whatever, they're just bored. And <laughs> if they, they should, they should seriously just take up role playing and then cleanly separate their fantasy from reality. That actually makes a lot of sense. So a lot of the conspiracy theorists are just thinking about nine 11 as some big, Thing because they aren't watching Game of Thrones. I think it's part of the appeal. I don't think they'll, they would see it that way, but we know from research, actually a recent study, in fact, that a lot of people believe in conspiracy theories because they want to feel special. And I think also because they just want the world to be a more interesting place. You know, it's easy just to get into your, your a boring routine and, you know, who wouldn't want, you know, the Earth to be visited by aliens or for there to be some big secret thing that you're privy to? Like, you're one of the few people who know what's actually going on. It's massively entertaining. It takes over their lives often. There have been a few studies into what makes people believe in conspiracy theories. 
In 2008, Jennifer Whitson and Adam Galinsky made a group of volunteers feel a lack of control by showing them random cards and making them choose the correct ones without giving them the rules. Then they tested to see how likely they were to see imaginary patterns, like images and noise and correlations in stock market data. People who felt that lack of control were more likely to make up patterns that weren't there. And in 2016, Princeton University researchers Damaris Grepner and Alan Komen found that when they made people feel socially excluded, either by having them remember a time they felt that way or by telling them another volunteer rejected them as a partner, those people were more likely to agree with conspiracy theories and demonstrate superstitious thinking. Hmm, socially isolated with no control over your life? There's a reason that the stereotypical conspiracy theorist is a loner in his parents' basement. And I have no problem with people, you know, finding entertainment in whatever, you know, whatever they, they want to do to, to, you know, make their lives more interesting and happy. But yeah, I, I think the big risk comes when they, they want to believe it so much that they start confusing it with reality. Uh, and I think they just need to invest more time in some hobbies, you know, some benign hobbies that don't in, involve distorting reality. That makes a lot of sense. So I've got to ask, how is a person supposed to know what's true? Yeah, that's the, that's the $64,000 question, right? And th there's no easy answer to that. It's, uh, I think, uh, the, the short answer, shortish answer is that it's a process. It's, you never really arrive at any final conclusion. It's just that you question everything. You, you know, follow some kind of valid process to try to figure out you know, what information is reliable and valid and what information perhaps is sketchy or not reliable. And just always remain open to the possibility that you're wrong and try to keep becoming less wrong, as we say. Like, you're never definitively correct. It's more that we're just trying to minimize error as much as possible. But you said that you need to be open to being wrong. Nobody wants to be open to being wrong. Yeah, it certainly goes against our basic psychology. We want things to be simple and we want to be correct. Those are often at cross purposes to each other um, because that being something being understandable, simple, gives us a sense of control. It allows us to mentally check that box. Yeah, I get this. I understand that. I totally have my head wrapped around it. I'm going to take this as reality and then move on and not worry about it. There's, you know, this, that's... That's nice. It kind of reduces, you know, the, the chaos and complexity of our lives. And we have to do that to some extent. But the, the, the risk is when you get to the point where you're no longer able to consider the possibility that you're wrong about something. But you always have to be open to that possibility because chances are you are wrong about most things or at least your understanding is massively incomplete. And, and unless you are the world's expert on some narrow topic – you know, there are other people who are going to know a lot more about it than you do. Um, so anyway, I think that the bottom line is that you should always be in a state of learning and never think that you've ever arrived on any topic or on any idea. And, and that's uh, probably the best state to be in. I agree that's a good state to be in. But you mentioned questioning everything. And mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious about the motivation behind that. Like, if I tell you... I believe in God or something like that. Is is your immediate reaction that you clinch up and, and you think that's that can't be possibly logical? And I mean, what's the motivation behind being so skeptical? Is it because do you like being a contrarian or do you like when things are accurate? What's the motivation? 
Yeah, I think a lot of people confuse being a contrarian with being a skeptic. And I, I do, I have encountered, especially online, you know, people who I would characterize as a contrarian who fancy themselves themselves skeptics, but they're not. You know, I think scientific skepticism ultimately is about, you know, having opinions and beliefs that are as close to reality as possible. And being a contrarian means taking a contrary view just for its own sake. And so sometimes that will involve denying uh, beliefs which are probably close to, to being true or taking a position that's actually farther from the truth just because it's contrary. And so it also kind of makes you predictable in, in that way. And like if you're always taking the contrary view, that's actually a simplistic approach as well. It's easy to do that. It's kind of knee jerk. It's like it's easy to be cynical. It's kind of cheap. Doesn't You're avoiding a lot of the hard intellectual work it takes to you know thoroughly evaluate something to really question it to ask god is this really really true um you know you bring up belief in god which is tricky because a lot of people believe in god not because they want to have beliefs which are true but for other reasons because they whatever they think it's a virtue to to have faith or because you know they want there or they think that there's something deeper to the universe it's complicated it's very cultural personal you know ideological it's it's not purely like people wanting to believe what's true and so you have to ask you know if someone says they believe in god it, a lot of it depends on who are they to me what's my relationship with them and and if I'm you know if it's such a relationship that I could take it further, the next thing I'd want to know is why. And if they say, "Well, I just choose to believe because it makes me feel good," then fine, that's that's a personal choice they could make for themselves. If they tell me because I have scientific proof that God exists, that's at the other end of the spectrum, right? Then now they're in the scientific arena. It's like, okay, well, if you're going to make a scientific claim, now now you know you have to defend that position with logic and evidence. If you just make a faith-based claim of you know personal choice, I can't really address that in any way. Um, you know, in, in terms in terms of being a skeptic, it's just that's just a personal choice. So your your particular brand of skepticism then is more about a curiosity and kind of wanting to explore the why versus just being right about something. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I try to be correct. I mean, that is part of the motivation. I don't want to believe stuff that's wrong. You know, uh, but it is also deeply interwoven with scientific curiosity. So um, scientific skepticism, you know, which is a lot of which is modeled after Carl Sagan. But, you know, we've evolved, I think, a lot beyond that point uh, is about combining those two things, cutting away what's probably not true, but being really enthusiastic about how you know amazing our universe is and how fun and interesting it is to explore it and to have that curiosity. So I think, you know, Sagan probably as a science communicator was the best at simultaneously combining those two things. Carl Sagan is definitely the most famous figure in scientific skepticism. But when you trace its history, you find a lot of founding fathers. Most people generally put the start of the modern skeptics movement in 1976, when philosopher Paul Kurtz, along with Sagan, the magicians James Randi and Martin Gardner, psychologists Ray Hyman and B.F. Skinner, and others, founded the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, or PSYCOP. But things really took off in the 2000s with the rise of the Internet, and some estimates put the number of skeptics today at more than a million worldwide. In any case, Sagan's style of skepticism was less about exposing errors and more about showing what was correct through the wonder of science— that's why he continues to be such an inspiring force years after his death. And and we're always trying to balance that as well. Like we're 
we're science enthusiasts, we're technophiles, we're always interested in the next big thing. But at the same time, we have to go, yeah, but, you know, we can't get so enthusiastic that we that we believe in something prematurely or we forget to ask important questions, you know. And that's basically the scientific attitude. Every working scientist I know combines those two things. You have to be curious and, and want to know how reality works. But at the same time, you have to really be dedicated to a, a harsh, no-nonsense process of, of you know, t- cutting away error and what isn't true. Otherwise, you, you veer towards pseudoscience, right? You end up just validating what you want to be true. And it's really easy to do that, unfortunately. Isn't it also kind of easy to mix up real science and pseudoscience if a couple studies maybe disagree on the results of a particular experiment, even within the scientific community? Isn't that difficult? Oh, it's, it's massively difficult. It's a mess. It's chaos. <laughs> there, first of all, there's no demarca- There's no sharp demarcation between science and pseudoscience, and philosophers of science literally call that the demarcation problem. There's just this fuzzy gray zone between two ends of a continuum of a spectrum with, you know, pretty solid science at one end and completely worthless rank pseudoscience at the other. But there's a lot of stuff in the middle. Um, You know, no study is flawless. Every study has limitations, if not outright flaws. Um, Scientists are people and they make a lot of mistakes and they have a lot of biases. And, you know, no one study is ever going to give you the definitive, complete answer to anything. So that means there's always room for judgment. You have to think about what does all the evidence show? What's the quality of that evidence? What do people who disagree with it have to say? And why do they disagree with it? You know, how solid a consensus is there? What really is the evidence for this? Or is this just our placeholder for now? Is it more just a model that really hasn't been shown empirically yet? You have to ask all of these questions and then really try to understand what the experts say to to arrive at some kind of reasonable opinion about any scientific question. And again, that takes a lot of work. There's really no shortcut or simplistic way to do that. And so it opens the door for denialism and pseudoscience and you know sloppy science, bad science, biased science of every variety. And it's easy. It's really easy to get lost in that. Um, it's it very. It really is a very high energy state to maintain, you, you know, a, a, a robust evaluation of scientific claims. Um, you know, most of the time, for most topics, we we have to. We really should just be trying to understand what the scientific consensus is because we we don't even have the background to to do a deep dive on the evidence itself. So I also think in. In addition to all the scientific factors you're weighing, there's also the outside influences. I, I think about in some of America's earlier days, in the early days of television and radio, you would have advertisements, nine out of 10 doctors say that this cigarette is the best and talking about right. how cigarettes aren't, aren't dangerous and things like that. Then you've got people today that take that, use it as an example, say, hey, listen, the cigarette people just paid off a bunch of scientists. Well, now climate change, that's the whole thing. Well, aren't, aren't a bunch of solar power investors and wind power investors just paying off all these scientists to back up climate change? Yeah, so it becomes very easy to to do that, to deny anything you don't like by saying, oh, it's big pharma, it's big whatever, big solar, which is ridiculous. <laughs> or it's just scientists are trying to get funding for their research. I mean, you could you could invent a secondary gain, a motive to deny 
anything. There's always a boogeyman that you can point to. So the fact that you can make up a, a shill argument like that doesn't really tell you much. You have to look for evidence that it's actually going on and try to figure out, well, what does the scientific evidence say despite these accusations? Um, so there, there isn't any evidence that there's any big conspiracy of the world's climatologists to fake climate change. Certainly, the solar industry doesn't have you know, the resources to be, you know, controlling the world's scientists. The uh, if anything, you know, the the fossil fuel industry, you know, with its billions of dollars, is they're putting their thumb on the scale. Uh, but they're they are unable to do it. They are unable to to um, get the world scientists to agree with their agenda. They're trying, so but but they can't do that. So they've had to satisfy themselves with with causing doubt and confusion, right? And they're actually using the same people in many cases, and certainly the same strategy as the tobacco industry did to try to delay you know, any kind of regulation against tobacco by just sowing doubt and confusion. Well, we're not sure. There is no consensus. Look at this scientist over here. He disagrees. Uh, just trying to muddy the waters as much as possible. And, you know, if, if you want the, the waters to be muddied because it goes along with your ideology, yeah, it's really convenient. You know, it's kind of prepackaged for you. Here you go. Here are five reasons to deny this science you don't want to believe in in the first place. You have to have a real dedication to again, to sort of understanding what the science actually says to, to rise above that. Conspiracy theories are just too cheap and easy. I mean, you can't, if you're just invoking it at a whole cloth just to deny something, it's your, your chances of that actually being reality are slim to nothing. All you're doing is then, you know, taking one step back, but you have to then provide evidence that there's actually a conspiracy and of course, they can't do that because there isn't one because it's the, the idea is actually kind of silly if you know scientists, you know, but that isn't to say scientists are never biased. They are. And, and they, they really, the, it just takes a long time for everything to work itself out. You know, you need a lot of scientists from different parts of the world, different kind of approaches, and their biases will tend to average out over time. And so, like, I'm always asking myself, is this a mature science? Is this mature to the point where we've kind of sorted out a lot of the controversies and biases and we're getting to a consensus that is robust. And again, that's a continuum. There's no sharp demarcation line. So you should always be thinking not just what does the science say, but how reliable and robust is it? How much of a consensus is there? How mature is it? Uh, and, you know, not just look for trivial reasons to deny it because you don't like what it says. <laughs> I know you mentioned that you see a lot of those kinds of arguments online. It seems to me that things are taken out of context more than they ever have, and people are using straw man arguments more than they ever have. You've been a skeptic for a long time. Do you think that things are worse than they used to be in terms of the conversation? No. I, I think overall, um, you know, people have always been making straw man arguments and denialist arguments. And, uh, you know, going back to the beginning of my skeptical career, 20 you know, plus years, uh, it's pretty, it's the same. I just think more people maybe are getting involved cause, or it's easier to engage with a lot of people. So you're seeing it more, but I think that, you know, people are fundamentally the same. Uh, you know, I think maybe politically things have maybe become a little bit more divisive or polarized. Um, but in terms of, 
you know, how, how people argue. I haven't seen a big difference there. I do see a lot more awareness of the tools of skepticism, which is a good step in the right direction. I think people are a lot more aware of cognitive biases and heuristics and logical fallacies, but I don't think they understand them deeply enough. And so they have kind of a sophomoric understanding. A lot, you know, a lot of people say of logical fallacies, which is a good start, you know, but it's you're not quite there. And and so it becomes really easy to shut down meaningful discussion by simply labeling something a logical fallacy. Wait, wait, wait. What's a logical fallacy again? It's a principle in philosophy that's defined as an error in reasoning that makes an argument invalid. You may have heard the term non sequitur, which literally means does not follow. All logical fallacies are non sequiturs because their conclusions don't follow their premises in a logical way. One famous one, and one Cody and Steve use a lot in this interview, is the straw man fallacy. That's where you argue against some misrepresentation of someone's position instead of the one they actually hold. Instead of trading blows with the idea, you're attacking a straw man you made of it. There's also ad hominem, where you attack the person instead of their idea, and the appeal to authority, where you say your argument is valid simply because some important person says it is. For a deeper dive, just search fallacy on curiosity.com. Um, and they're really not optimized to be used that way. You really shouldn't try to use a logical fallacy that way. You should use it to understand your own thinking and your own arguments better and to make them better and more valid, you know, tighter, stronger arguments. Um, just using it to say, oh, that's a straw man or whatever, just to throw a label, that's an ad hominem, that's a, you know, anyone can do that. And in fact, the denialists and the pseudoscientists are doing that. They, they immediately adopted the, the, like, the verbiage of logical fallacies and biases that skeptics use and then twisted it to their ends by using them very superficially, you know, using them wrong, essentially. So, uh, I think that we're like sort of halfway there. I think, you know, the knowledge of these tools of critical thinking is much more out there than it used to be. But we need to keep pushing to raise understanding of these critical thinking tools to a much higher level. Certainly a lot of individuals are, you know, do, you know, I think have a more nuanced or sophisticated understanding. I see a lot of that, too. So I think we're actually making a lot of progress. Um, but uh, there's still a long way to go. That's encouraging to hear from you that you think we're kind of maybe starting to steer the ship in the right direction. What if you had your wish of maybe the next step that people would take? What, what should people know and be aware of that will help us continue that progress? Yeah, again, I don't think there's any one thing, uh, you know, just like all the things that we've been talking about, knowledge of science or anything. It's, it's, it's a lifelong process, uh, I think. And that, I think maybe that's the thing that I would want people to know. Like, don't stop. Don't think because you could name 20 logical fallacies that you're done, <laughs> that you're a critical thinker or you're a skeptic. Because when you, again, when you first learn these things, you're going to use them wrong. You're going to use them just to validate what you already believe. You have to get to a pretty high level before you actually start making your own beliefs and arguments more valid, more rational. So it's the same thing with science. And, and this has been studied as well, interestingly. You know, again, 30 years ago, we might have said, oh, yeah, the more people understand science, the less they'll believe in pseudoscience. But then we studied that. I mean, the, the royal we, psychologists, studied that. And they found that that's actually, that relationship isn't that simple, that the more people understand science based upon their level of education, actually, the more they believe in pseudoscience until you get to the highest levels of like postgraduate 
science education, then belief in pseudoscience plummets. A 2016 study from Yale bears this out. They used a basic science quiz to measure volunteers' scientific knowledge, then let them choose something to read to measure their scientific curiosity. Those who read about science over sports or politics got a higher curiosity score. Next, the participants rated how concerned they were about a variety of scientific but politically charged issues, like global warming and fracking. Unsurprisingly, Democrats were more likely to judge those two issues as risky, and Republicans were less so. The researchers found the more scientific knowledge a person had, the more likely they were to be polarized on the issues. But one thing made the Democrats and Republicans get the closest to meeting across the aisle. Curiosity. Dems and Republicans with the most scientific curiosity were the least polarized. Maybe we should change our tagline to curiosity makes you less biased. Hmm, doesn't quite roll off the tongue. And I think it's the same thing with critical thinking. I think as people get more critical thinking tools, initially, they just use them to justify their own beliefs. They get more confident in their own wrong beliefs and are better able to defend them. They're basically just more sophisticated and intelligent about rationalizing what they want to believe in the first place. And you have to get to a pretty high level before you actually start challenging your own beliefs and changing your own beliefs, making them you know, better, more, more nuanced, more versatile, and more uh, legitimate, more robust, because you've actually applied those critical thinking tools systematically to your own arguments and your own position. So you have to sort of pass through that initial phase of just using this knowledge to be a more sophisticated believer in the same nonsense you've always believed. Um, and you know, some people, I think, get stuck there. So keep pushing through, I guess, is the, is the bottom line. Yeah, and it's almost like no matter how good the science is or how sound a scientific study is, it almost kind of comes down to the psychology of how to communicate with people and how to convince people to change their way of thinking, right? I mean, do you look at a lot of the psychology of this kind of stuff? Yeah, absolutely. We've always, you know, from the the beginning, you've always had a very keen interest in in social psychology and in the psychology of belief. It's been always been part and parcel of, of skepticism because essentially we are science and critical thinking communicators. And so we're trying to not only do science communication, but get people to think more critically and understand critical thinking. And the only way to really do that is to understand the psychology of your own belief. Because if you're a motivated believer, you know, we call this motivated reasoning, it doesn't matter. There's no way I can I can give you information to get you out of that belief. You, I, you have to at some point have some insight into your own psychology. Otherwise, again, you're just going to use all of these tools just to reinforce the belief that you want in the first place. So you have to at some point confront the psychology of belief. And uh, you know, being a skeptic means that you you consciously prioritize having beliefs which are valid over beliefs which are not valid. You know, you have to care more about the process of how you go about evaluating beliefs than any particular conclusion. You have to relish being proven wrong as an opportunity to change your belief and make it to make it less wrong, right? To make it better. And if you don't sort of turn that psychology around, because I think we inherently start out as being curious, but at the same time being really defensive about things we already believe and things we want to believe. There's a massive confirmation bias 
and what psychologists call a desirability bias. And until you turn that on its head, you're just going to be servicing those beliefs, not really being skeptical. Yeah, I mean, I think of the book The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if you've read that. Uh, no, I haven't read that one. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a, the subtitle is Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion and kind of talks about what, what you were saying is that humans are basically we have this belief system and when something challenges it, it's almost like our brains make backflips trying to rationalize why, oh, yeah. you know, why, why my idea, you know, how, how, you know, not fitting that into reality, but fitting that into my reality and, and trying to rationalize that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's we call that motivated reasoning. We're really good at it. And ironically, smart people are better at it. That's why that's what I was saying before, you know, if you you know, if you're better educated, you have, you know, some knowledge of science, some knowledge of critical thinking. That just feeds your motivated reasoning until you get to the point where you really start to turn it inward and you 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 know, actually you not only are okay with the idea, but almost welcome the idea of changing what you believe, because that's an, that's an, a marker that you're moving, you know, you're progressing, you're moving in, in you know, hopefully the right direction. Um, if you're just using it to justify beliefs that you've had for a long time, you know, chances are you're just engaging in motivated reasoning. Or if you believe, I always, I'm, another way to look at this, I'm always the most suspicious of beliefs that I have conclusions I come to that are in line with my own ideology. So, you know, if I have a particular worldview and this like supports my worldview, I have to be especially suspicious of it because that's when I'm going to be most vulnerable. That's when my motivated reasoning is going to try hard to engage and also just confirmation bias. I'm going to want to just, oh yeah, that, that supports what I believe and want to believe. So yeah, I'll believe that. It makes sense. I'm not going to question it, but that's exactly when you should question it the most. Wow. That is a, that is a tall order. Yeah. It's, it's a high energy state. Absolutely. And it's easy, you know, to, it takes a lot of vigilance, a lot of practice and a lot of dedication. Yeah. It's a lifelong process. There's no shortcut to that. You know, you, you just have to really be dedicated to policing your own thinking. And for that kind of thing, do you recommend uh, some people on social media will say, well, you know, I watch CNN and Fox News to get both sides of the story. Do, do you find that kind of behavior helpful? Absolutely. I mean, I never I never get to the point where I feel even a little comfortable about any any topic unless I've listened to what all sides have to say about it. I ha So my process partly is, all right, so what is... What are the diff what are the different points of view? What are they saying about it? Okay, well, what does this group say about what the other group is saying? What do they say in return? And you try to work all the way through that process until you see, okay, who has the most consistent upper hand here? Who's making the better arguments? Who has the last word when it comes to the evidence or logic? You know, and who's like resorting to conspiracy theories or like horrible logic in order to defend themselves when they've essentially been defeated in their position? But you have to work through the whole thing to really understand that. So yeah, I mean, I can't listen to Fox News for that long because, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I do. I, I watch Fox News, you know, um, more than I'd like, actually. But uh, just to try to, or I read lots of articles on both sides. You know, I do I do more reading than watching. But um, I really try to wrap my head around what the, what the quote unquote other side or what both sides are saying. Because um, otherwise, you know, you're going to probably be attacking a straw man yourself. So give people the benefit of the doubt, you know, really try to understand their position, try to understand the best sort of version of their position and and go from there. Because otherwise, your chances are you're going to be 
just attacking a straw man to confirm what you want to believe in the first place. There's one easy thing I like to do to understand both sides of an issue. Whenever I hear something that's brilliant or mind-blowing or that I just want to tell everybody, I'll hop on Google and search for that thing along with the word myth or wrong or debunked. If the thing is popular enough, you'll usually find someone tearing it down. If their take is nonsense, go ahead, spread the good news. But if it convinces you, you dodged a bullet. You've spoken a lot about vaccines and autism and homeopathy and AIDS denialism and other conspiracy theories like 9-11 and things like that. What's the craziest thing you've come across? I mean, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, there are a lot of them are, are equivalent in terms of the degree to which they deny reality. I could tell you the most recent extreme belief that I've done a deep dive on is the flat earth believers. Uh, and, yeah, the first thing people say when I bring that up is they don't really believe that, do they? It's like, no, no. Yeah, they actually do. Uh, and. I mean, the the degree to which they have to distort their perception of reality in order to maintain belief that the earth is actually flat is astounding. (laughs) Look, it really is. And it is a massive conspiracy theory uh, because essentially every bit of evidence that the earth is actually roughly a sphere is is a conspiracy. So and then, you know, you would think, of course, that has to be an extreme conspiracy. And you're right. They think that it's a massive multi-century international conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just the the degree of altered reality here, it really is amazing. And I think, you know, it, it does get on the verge of like being diagnosable in some time. You know what I mean? It's like, this is just more than just a conspiracy theorist. This is somebody who has a a difficult relationship with reality. But, you know, again, I know people, I know people who are mentally healthy, you know, they don't, they wouldn't, they don't have a diagnosable mental illness, but they've gone down that rabbit hole and have been convinced, you know, that there's this big conspiracy to convince us all that the world is round when in fact it's flat. It's amazing. Wow. Um, It's it's kind of caught wildfire. It's it's like a trend almost, like a fad. How do these catch fire? It it catches on. You know, again, this is where social media makes things happen faster. I don't think it's a different process, just a faster, more widespread process with social media. But I think it comes largely from some motivated person packaging all of the motivated reasoning in one easy to consume venue. Like here's a YouTube video. Watch this YouTube video for an hour and it'll go through a hundred reasons why the world is really flat. And then people get overwhelmed like that. It's like loose change for 9-11 conspiracy theories. It's a prepackaged motivated reasoning and confirmation bias. Um, so it really challenges your critical thinking skills. But you know, the thing is, the thing that amazes me is that there are certain claims that don't pass the smell test, you know, like the flat earth thing. It's like I don't necessarily have to be able to to know offhand, you know, in fine detail why each factual claim is wrong, you know, in in terms of the flat earthers. You know, I could start from the position. Well, this is this is totally ridiculous. I'm going to start from that position, and you have to convince me that it's not absolutely absurd and ridiculous. And, you know, that's I think that's a perfectly reasonable default position to take. You should always be able to be convinced. You know, when I I do that as well, it's like, yeah, convince me. Give me your best shot. Tell me what evidence you think is the most convincing, no matter how absurd I think the belief is. Go right ahead. Um, But it is reasonable to say, but you have the burden of proof, right? You're making the extraordinary claim here. You have the burden of proof, you know, that 
whatever, that the world is flat. And they don't come anywhere close to that burden, of course. All they really have is just really, really bad arguments and completely extreme conspiracy theories. That's really all that they have, as you might imagine, because the world is not flat, you know. But it does. It is a good case study. Like again, as a skeptic, I look at it also like from an academic, you know, point of view, almost like a psychological case study. It's like, wow, this is God. This is what the human brain is capable of. Wow, <laughs> that's that is interesting. That people can go down that rabbit hole and actually convince themselves that NASA, you know, is is has armed militia on the on the border. You, you know, where the, the ring of ice around our planet and they'll shoot anybody who gets close to the edge of the earth. Wait, wow, people actually believe that. That's amazing. That's part of it? Oh, yeah. Well, because they say, well, why go to the edge and show me the edge of the earth? Well, you can't because, you know, you know, NASA will shoot you if you get too close. <laughs> I did not know that was part of the conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it really is fascinating. If you, you know, have a couple hours to kill, go down that rabbit hole. It is amazing. And of course, you just said, what about all the all the, the pictures and videos of, you know, orbit and, and of the Earth and everything? It's all faked. Everything's faked, you know. So really, it's all, all of it. So any amateur astronomer who whips out a telescope, you know, they're part of the conspiracy. That's okay. so bizarre. Like, and these people, it's like part of their identity. I mean, you attack yeah. this belief and they defend it like you're attacking them. Yeah, well, because you are kind of attacking them, uh, to be to be fair, uh, because when you take an extreme belief, that automatically puts you on the defensive, right? Because then people think you're nuts because you believe something like the earth is flat. So now you're, you are, have a huge motivation to justify your belief. So it does become part of your identity. And if because you make it that, then an attack on the belief is an attack on you. Um, you know what I mean? So that's why I think it gets, brings us back to this notion that you can't use beliefs as identity. You know, you have to be able to change. Your identity should be, I'll believe whatever the evidence says. That has to be your identity. I'll believe facts and logic, not any particular belief, because then otherwise you're locking yourself into that belief and you're essentially guaranteeing that you're going to have to get defensive and engage in motivated reasoning when people show you that, no, actually the facts don't support your belief. Wow. Well, that's really fascinating stuff. And I hope that people can take some takeaways from this that they should just self-examine a little bit more. And yeah. Ask the hard questions that are that are hard. I mean, have and have you ever? I'm assuming had something that you believed that you found really really difficult to change your belief about. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we we talk a lot about that too about changing belief. Um, and it, you know, most of the time, there's no eureka or aha moment where the scales fall from your eyes. You're like, oh, I was wrong about this all the time. It's more of a process and it should be a process. It's just that, oh, you incrementally change in reaction to each new bit of evidence and looking at things a certain way. And then over time, your, your beliefs evolve. So, and I think my beliefs are constantly evolving. Um, hopefully getting more you know, nuanced, not necessarily changing from one thing to the other. I think I'm probably going to always believe that life on this earth evolved. You know, I, I doubt at, at this point, the evidence is so robust. It's hard to imagine that we were this wrong or that, you know, uh, evidence would come to light that would that would completely 
alter that fundamental conclusion, but my understanding of evolution and how it works and how it progresses is constantly evolving and has changed a lot. It's very different than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Um, and same thing with a lot of a lot of different beliefs. And then there are things that where I sort of suspend my conclusions for a while, like when, you know, again, if you go back like 20 years or so, I was probably agnostic towards global warming until I really wrapped my head around it enough to to understand what the consensus was and how robust was it and what they were actually saying. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is the belief now. They say it's 90, 95%. So it's 90, 95%. That makes sense. Um, then I, you know, I was able to, you know, process all of the, the denialist positions and I gave them a fair shot. You know, I always do that. So, okay, you think that, and again, think about it this way as a, as a, uh, you know, a self-identified skeptic and science communicator and critical thinking communicator. If I came to the conclusion, I've said this in many things, like I, same thing with, with vaccines and autism. The first time I, I didn't write about it until I did a really deep dive on it. And then, and I went into it thinking, and the first book I read was um, a, a book promoting the idea that there was a connection between the, do, the two evidence of harm. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go into this with an open mind and see what the evidence really has to say, give them a fair shot. And I'm always thinking to myself, now, if, this, if I c come to the conclusion that there's a massive conspiracy to distort the science and that global warming isn't happening or that vaccines do cause autism— I will become famous if I come out, if I could really defend that position, if that's really my position, if that's what the evidence actually shows, nothing would be better for my career as a science communicator if I feel I could really defend that position. But, you know, I didn't come to those conclusions. I came to the conclusion like, yeah, the evidence is really solid that vaccines are safe and man-made global warming is a thing. You know, it's happening. So... That's kind of the boring answer because it goes along with the mainstream consensus. But I, I always find it amusing that people think, oh, you're just motivated to come to that answer. Actually, the opposite is the true, it, is, the, is the truth. Uh, it would be massively helpful to my career if I at any point could really defend the position that what most people believe is not true about something. You know, that's always the more interesting position to take. Interesting. Even if you're being censored and the scientific community starts to reject you and the media doesn't want to talk to you, I mean, you really still think it would be a, a boom for you? Yeah, absolutely. But again, the, the premise here is that if I'm correct, right, if, if the science were on the side of there being a connection between vaccines and autism, and I felt that I could make that point, then absolutely, I would fight that fight to the end, no question. Um, the, the, but of course, you can't, you know, do that because the evidence doesn't support that position. So, uh, you know, but as a as a critical thinking, skeptical communicator, the best thing for my career always is to take whatever position is actually supported by science or evidence. I have to always defend my process. And so that's I always need to do that. Whatever the conclusion is, it's never worth it to me to to compromise the process because one conclusion or another is in itself better or for whatever reason you might think. But if it just so happened that we are being visited by aliens and I could really make a strong case for it or whatever, you know, whatever nutty belief you want to include there. Yeah, that would be fantastic. I'd love to do that. That would be wonderful. One recent example of a high profile figure who changed his mind when he examined the science is Bill Nye. In a 2014 AMA on Reddit, one fan told him that he was disheartened by a 2005 episode of Bill Nye the Science Guy, where he warned of the potential dangers of GMO food. 
Nye said his views hadn't changed, and that led to a flurry of articles by biologists asking him to take a second look at the science. What happened? He took a second look at the science. In a backstage interview for Real Time with Bill Maher in 2015, Bill Nye announced that he would revise the GMO chapter in his recently published book, Undeniable. He said, quote, I went to Monsanto and I spent a lot of time with the scientists there, and I've revised my outlook, and I'm very excited about telling the world. When you're in love, you want to tell the world, end quote. If a big name like Bill Nye can admit he was wrong, it ought to be pretty easy for the rest of us. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time talking all things pseudoscience. I just want to wrap up with one final segment we call the Curiosity Challenge. I will try to teach you something or at least quiz you on something that maybe you don't know, but it is kind of in your realm of expertise, uh, so, you, so you may know this answer. Uh, and then and then I'll give you the opportunity to do the same for me. So okay. there is an airport in the United States that is the home to countless conspiracy theories. Can you tell me which airport and if you're aware of any of the conspiracy theories? You mean, well, by airport, are you including Area 51? Not Area 51, no. Like Not a, Area 51. No, an, an actual commercial, like a commercial airport. Yep, international commercial airport. Um, let's see. I don't, re- ah, that's a good one. I don't recall any conspiracies surrounding a commercial airport. No, I, I don't know that one. Oh, wow. Crazy. So you can learn about this on curiosity.com, but it's actually the Denver International Airport. Okay, what's the conspiracy theory? So there's actually a number of them. So apparently, according to a dedication marker inside the airport, the New World Airport Commission is responsible for building the airport, but the New World Airport Commission doesn't exist. And so some conspiracy theorists believe the mention is a nod to the New World Order or the Nazi Party, and theorists say that some of the runways kind of look like a swastika, so that could be evidence And there's also a weird, creepy, I don't know if you've been to the Denver International Airport, but there's a weird giant statue that's kind of a creepy mascot. It's called the Blue Mustang. It's a 32-foot tall blue horse with glowing red eyes, and it's been been dubbed Blucifer by the locals. And some think that the statue has evil energy, and the massive Mustang killed its sculptor after falling on him and severing an artery. So other people claim it's the headquarters of the Illuminati. It's imagery portrays satanic messages. It's hiding secret bunkers underneath. It's got quite a few conspiracy theories. So the next time you're in the Denver International Airport, (laughs) take a look around. I'll take a look. You know, now that you say it, it sounds vaguely familiar. The New World Order bit does. I think I probably have heard that before. I, th- I just forgot about it. I think that we might not even mention that on the show 10 years ago or something. But yeah, that, yeah, that, that's a good one. Yeah, you've been at this for a long time. And you've been, a, I mean, the, yeah. your podcast has been around since before any podcast craze was happening. Who's, 2005, yeah. Before before podcasting was a thing on iTunes, yeah. I, oh my God. How did you decide to go into that route? Uh, well, we, you know, we were already doing the skeptical thing and we were looking for more ways to generate content and looking to, to get into more online social media content. A friend of mine said, hey, there's this new thing called podcasting. And I, I stole that idea and you know, <laughs> we, we created the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe and it just worked out really well. It literally has to be one of the longest running podcasts, I think, of all time. It's been weekly the whole time? Pretty much, yeah. 636 episodes. It's un- unbelievable. And I've listened to a lot of it and it is very good. So so people oh, should check you. it out. Um, and I will also pass the ball to you for your um, question for me for the Curiosity Challenge. 
Okay. So you, you asked me for something outside of my area of expertise. So, but I'm going to, um, this is not outside of an area of interest of mine though. So let me ask you the question this way. What land animal has the largest eyes? Oh, wow. I'm thinking not, a, no, an owl would be a bird. <laughs> not, well, that's about that, birds count as land animals. In other words, not, not in the water. So not the whale you know, okay. or anything. So not, a, not aquatic. I'm thinking it's either going to be a lizard or an owl. So um, I will guess with owl being my runner up, I will guess iguana. So you're closer with owl in that it's a bird. So I'll give you that. It's a bird, but not an owl. And I'll add another tidbit. Its eyes are actually larger than its brain. Each individual eye is larger than its brain. Wow. Um, five, five centimeters in diameter. Wow. No idea. I mean, eagle would be my next guess, but I don't think that's it. Bigger. What's the biggest bird? What is the biggest bird? Not an a- ostrich. An ostrich. Right. Yeah. Ostrich has the largest eyes of any land animal, bigger than their brains. Uh, they're massive, they're like bill- size of a billiard ball. Have you ever seen an ostrich? Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen them, you know. In the uh, wild or in zoos? In zoos. I've never been to Africa. I really want to go at some point, but I've never been there. Um, yeah, and, and I've seen them running wild in like parks and stuff, you know, but um, never never in Africa itself. Wow. How did, how did you find out about that? I'm a, I'm a birder. I'm, I'm interested in birds. That's my hobby. Oh, wonderful. One of my hobbies. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, there is a myth surrounding ostriches, which we'll mention really quickly as well. The myth, I don't think a lot of people really believe in this, but it's hard to know that an ostrich will bury its head in the sand when it senses danger or to try to quote unquote escape from a predator. But they don't do that because obviously that would be very counterproductive. You know, that would never be an adaptive strategy. We don't actually know where that myth came from, but there are a lot of possible sources of it. It's always interesting to try to trace back a false belief to where it came from. Um, there were observations that, you know, so ostriches will bury their eggs in, uh, they don't bury them, but they're in a, in like a, a hole in the ground, a depression. And they, they will, when they're tending to their eggs, they will be standing over the nest and putting their head down into their nest. So from a distance, it could look like their head is buried under the ground. They also lay their head against the ground when they sleep. And again, that could create the illusion that maybe it's under the, the ground, but it isn't. Um, but we're not really sure exactly where that comes from. I think it was Pliny the Elder observed that an ostrich will put its head in a bush and think that it's hidden. So that may be the ultimate source of it. Uh, but that was in a bush, not buried it and burying it in the ground or in the sand. But interesting. But they, yeah, that but that is not what they do. Oh. They 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 run. They're they're the fastest bipedal you know runners on the planet as well. Wow. Well, uh, myth busted on the Curiosity Podcast. And you can learn more about the Denver International Airport thing I talked about on Curiosity.com or on the Curiosity app. And if you want to hear more from Steve Novella, you can find the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and presumably everywhere, I would presume. Yes, pretty much. Pretty much. Um, Also, your Neurologica blog we'll link to in the show notes. It's like neurological, but without the L at the end. Yeah. And you're also the founder of the New England Skeptical Society. And my gosh, you are a busy guy. Yeah, that's what what people tell me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much again for joining me on the Curiosity Podcast. We really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. I've got an extra credit question for you, courtesy of the Curiosity app. It's about treating sleep deprivation. 
When you're really tired, driving your car can be just as dangerous as driving drunk, so please don't do it. But if you have to get somewhere and you need to combat sleep deprivation, what does science say is the best way to do it? Here's a hint. Loud music is not your best option. The answer is after this. Have you ever been listening to the Curiosity Podcast and wanted to share a clip on Facebook or Twitter? Well, here's some super exciting news. Now you can, thanks to Greta.com. That's G-R-E-T-T-A. You can stream our podcast on Greta.com slash curiosity, and their podcast player will follow along with a written transcript of each episode while you listen. When you hear a clip you want to share, just find it and click share. Greta will build a video for you to share with your friends so you can help spread the word about our podcast. Again, that's Greta.com slash curiosity. And drop us a line to let us know what you think of this super cool new service. If you still can't get enough curiosity in your life, then why not check out our newsletter at curiosity.com slash email. We've got three bonus stories for you every week, plus exclusive features you won't find anywhere else. Just sign up at curiosity.com slash email and never stop learning. If you ever have a question about anything we discuss on the Curiosity Podcast, then please email us your questions at podcast at curiosity.com. You should be rewarded for your curiosity. So give us the opportunity to answer your question. And who knows, we might feature it on our show next week. Again, our email address is podcast at curiosity.com. Don't be shy. We're always here to help. That brings us to today's extra credit answer. If you're sleep deprived and you have to drive somewhere, then what can you do? Well, the answer is not rolling down your window and turning up your music. A 1998 study showed that a blast of cold air and loud music were, quote, temporary expedients to reduce driver sleepiness, but had no significant effect on waking you up. So according to a 2002 study, here are the best two ways to stay awake on the road. Stopping for a nap or drinking a caffeinated energy drink, or both. The study suggested that coffee might work in lieu of an energy drink, but the caffeine levels are variable, so beware. But anyway, if you're dozing off behind the wheel right now, then pull over and take a break. For more on this and a whole bunch of other things, visit curiosity.com. That's all for this week. For the Curiosity Podcast, I'm Ashley Hamer. I'm Cody Goff. 